in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may the Lord grant us his blessing, his mercy, his grace, and his wisdom now and forever and unto the ages of all ages. Amen. So tonight, tonight is the eve, the preparation for Great and Holy Friday. And Great and Holy Friday, which, which is by far, really by far, as we all know, of course, the one day, the one day of the whole year in which the entire church, the entire church, the whole world over, truly prays together in one voice and as one. You know, more, more prayers, more prayers are prayed on this one single day. More readings are read, more hymns are chanted on Holy Friday than on any other single day the whole year. Right. Now, ever since ever since we started Holy Week, way way back on Monday, I know it seems a while ago now. Um, each and every day, each and every day so far, everything we've been doing so far in Holy Week has been aimed at something, something that has kind of been far off in the distance something that we've been gradually, slowly approaching. It's slowly been getting closer. All of the prayers, all of the hymns, all of the readings have been pointing us towards something. Something that tomorrow will finally, finally tomorrow it will come into complete and clear focus, right? And that is the cross, the cross, right? the glorious cross that is truly, truly the joy of every Christian, right? The cross is our road to salvation. It's our key. It's our key to paradise. It's our doorway to the kingdom of heaven. St. John Chrysostom, he calls the cross, he calls the cross our feast. I mean, the cross. He calls it our feast and our spiritual celebration. This is what St. John Chrysostom calls the cross. You know, last Sunday, on Palm Sunday, when our Lord rode into Jerusalem, right, victoriously as a king, as all of us, all of us in church, we all raised our voices and sang Hosanna in the highest, right? We all, with, all, with, the, with one voice, we declared him as our king of kings, right? And finally, tomorrow, our king reaches his throne, Right? Tomorrow he is enthroned on the cross. Right? Tomorrow at the twelfth hour, we're going to sing that beautiful hymn, Pickethronos, right? From Psalm 44. Thy throne, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. The cross, that's that throne. Right? The cross is that scepter, right? The church fathers explain that the cross, it is the cross that ultimately gives, gives this whole Holy Week, right, its significance. And even much more so, the cross is what gives our lives all of their significance, all of their value, and all of its worth. I mean, think about that. The cross is what gives your life all of its meaning, all of its significance, all of its value. 
And this is why, this is why the cross is the most central figure, right, for us Christians. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the, the, the emblem, it's the badge, the pennant of our faith, right? You know, we dedicate, we dedicate every Friday of every week, of every month, of every year to remembering our Lord crucified on the cross, right? Most of the year we fast on Fridays, even outside of the church's, you know, general um, seasonal fasts, so that we don't ever forget the cross. And it's not just one day a week, every week, that is dedicated to the cross, but in fact, every single day, 365 days a year, the sixth and the ninth hours of our daily prayers are dedicated to the cross. Right? So clearly, clearly, without a doubt, the cross and its constant, its constant presence in our lives is the most dominant and central aspect for us as Christians. Right? But we need to remember something. We need to remember that the importance of the cross, the significance of the cross, is not limited, of course, to the sufferings of our Lord. The cross is not just about crucifixion. Right? The cross, ultimately, is about what was accomplished for us by our Lord at his crucifixion. Right? His death on that cross, which then brought about his resurrection and his ascension to his place at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Right? The full story, the full story of what our Lord did to redeem us from our sins includes all these things, right? And the cross is what signifies all of these same things. It is the symbol where the price was paid. You know, and speaking, speaking of this, the price that was paid, right? We often say that Judas, whom we've been, you know, talking about, Judas, we often say, committed his betrayal by selling Christ for 30 pieces of silver, right? But you know the truth about Judas's betrayal is not, it's not that he sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold himself for 30 pieces of silver. He put a price on himself, right? That's what those 30 pieces of silver were. And just like him, just like Judas, we'd a, we put a price on ourselves with our sins. But what we see tonight and tomorrow is our Lord Jesus Christ paying the price for our sins, the price that we put on ourselves, right, by him dying on the cross for us. You know, as we pray in the prayer of reconciliation in every liturgy, right, we pray he loved his own who were in the world and as a ransom paid on our behalf, he gave himself up unto death, death which up till then had reigned over and dominated us because we had been bound, chained up and sold off because of our sins. And we continue and we pray, but he descended into Hades through the cross and released our bonds, the chains and shackles of our sin, right? All of this, all of this is what the cross is for us. And so the, the cross, the cross, it isn't just some some ornament or some wall art or, or some piece of jewelry around our necks. 
right? Rather, it is a key. It is a key. It is a shield. It is a weapon, right? It's a throne. It's a scepter. Another wonderful, incredible quote from St. John Chrysostom. Listen closely. This one is a little bit longer, but listen to these beautiful words of St. John Chrysostom. St. John Chrysostom said, the cross has become the source of innumerable blessings for us. It has delivered us from delusion. It has enlightened those sitting in darkness. And it has reconciled us who were at enmity with God. He says, when we were enemies with him, the cross, it made us friends with him. When we were distant, it brought us near. He says, it is the destroyer of enmity, the guardian of peace and the treasury of all blessings. He continues and says, thanks to the cross, we no longer walk in the deserts of our life, for we have discovered the true way. We no longer live outside the kingdom, for we have found the door. For we have received our bridegroom. He says, because of the cross, we are no longer, we are no longer widows, right? And this is and this is because we have received our bridegroom. We do not fear the fiery darts of the devil. We no longer fear the wolf for we have the good shepherd. We no longer fear any tyrant, for we are at the side of the king. And for all of these reasons, he says, this is why we celebrate the cross. This is why we celebrate the cross. So we should be using the cross daily. We should be using our cross daily, right? Because as St. Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, for all of us who are being saved, The cross, it is the very power of God in our hands. You know, all week long so far, we have been proclaiming over and over. Thine is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty. This is the anthem of Holy Week. We could say it's the anthem of Christianity, really. Right? Thine is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty. Does anyone know, by the way, how many times we will have sung this verse by the end of Holy Week? Hmm. 600? Hmm. 1,000? Hmm. Almost, almost 2,000 times. To be exact, 1,908. Believe me, I did the math. One thousand nine hundred and eight, and and that doesn't include the times just Abuna says it alone, right? This is just the times that the whole congregation is saying it. One thousand nine hundred and eight times. Thine is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty. Now multiply that number by the number of mouths in the church saying this, and multiply that by the number of churches around the whole world crying it out. It's as if the entire earth is roaring. Thine is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty. Right. Where? Where is that great power? Where is that glory? Where is that majesty? It's right there on the cross. That's where it is. Right. So for us, for us, the main way 
that we access this roaring power of the cross in our daily lives, the way we access God's power at home, at school, at work, wherever, in the car, in the store, is by having the cross always before us, always in front of us. The cross has to be a focal point for us, the point where we fix, we fix our gaze. It's where we fix and keep our attention, especially, especially when we catch our minds starting to lead us towards sin. We simply return our gaze to the cross. Our eyes and the eyes of our soul just lock, lock onto the cross. And we declare, yours is the power, yours is the glory, yours is the majesty. The next time you are in the midst of temptation, the next time, just try this. The next time you feel yourself in the middle of temptation, or that temptation is coming upon you, just try this. Focus on the cross. If you have someone near you, lock your eyes onto it. If you don't have one near you, lock onto it in your mind and see your Lord and Savior hung on that cross with his arms outstretched and shout out, thine is the power, thine is the glory, thine is the majesty, and hear the heavens shouting it along with you. Do this and your demons will flee. They will quake, they will shatter. Because right there on that cross, that's where we see yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Yours is the majesty, right? It's really only on this cross where we see the great magnitude of God's love for us, the immense size, the unimaginable size of God's love, its incredible height, its depth, its length, its breadth, right? The cross itself is no longer, is no longer a symbol of execution and torture and death. It's a symbol of love and a symbol of God, who himself is that love, right? Within the cross is embodied everything that he does for us, right? Because it is at that cross, at the very peak of his pain and his passion, comes the very peak of his mercy and his love. It is from that cross that he cries out, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. Right? You know, nowadays, nowadays I know we've got we've got all these kinds of apps on our on our phones and our mobile devices that have all kinds of uh, filters, right, for the camera. Filters, and we apply these filters to see our world through these filters to make it more, make our world a little bit more colorful, to make it glow and pop and, you know, remove all the blemishes, right? But of course, all of this is artificial, right? All of this is artificial. The cross is where we fix our gaze because the cross is the lens, right? The cross is the real filter that we need to apply to our eyes and see our world through that filter, right? Through these kind of like cross-shaped glasses, right? And through which we try to see everything in the world. And when you have that filter applied, that is the only way that we will see in the world what is true and what is pure and what is good. 
And that is how we will also see what is impure and what is untrue and what is not good for what it really is. We simply cannot walk around this sin-infected world unfiltered, without a filter. Because if we do, we just, won't, we just won't recognize. We won't recognize the good and the pure, nor will we recognize the defiled and the in, unpure, right? In things that we just regularly experience and are faced with in this life of ours, right? And this is the reason, this is the reason why so many people, right? Even many of us, many of us Christians, just have such a hard time recognizing. We don't recognize poison the poison in things that are just so common around us. Even things that we very readily participate in and because we just see them as normal, simply because they're so routine and accepted by the world. And the church tries, the church tries so hard to expose these things and help us realize these things. You know, but unfortunately many of us, when we hear the church speak of these types of things, we, church, we think the church is just I don't know, stuck in, in some kind of irrelevant, archaic, cultural mindset, or is just being old-fashioned or something like that, rather than the church revealing the true nature, the absolute truth of things, right? So we need to walk with that cross filter turned on always, right? The one that the church provides. It's the only way we'll see truth. Tomorrow in the third hour prayer, in the third hour tomorrow morning, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate is going to stand before all of the people and he's going to present Christ to them. And he's going to say simply, behold the man. Behold the man. Look at him. And right before that, Pilate, he had also said, we're going to hear this in the first hour tomorrow morning, Pilate asks, what is truth? What is the truth? Pilate asked this right after Christ said, I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. So then Pilate says, well, what is the truth? Right. The incredible message for us in these two very simple but loaded statements of Pontius Pilate. What is truth? And behold the man. So I want to take a few moments to really think about these words of Pontius Pilate, especially, especially behold the man. Because to behold the man, of course, what man is he talking about? He's talking about Christ. So to behold the man is to behold that truth, right? But Pilate doesn't notice it. He doesn't see the truth. Why doesn't he see it? Why doesn't he see it? Because he simply didn't live according to the truth, right? Why was Christ crucified? Because people didn't live according to the truth. And because people still don't. Because we don't. That's why Christ is crucified. Why was there that angry crowd there that day? Why did we have that, that uproar that came from all of those people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. All of those voices coming from his own people. Why was there a crown of thorns? Why was he spit upon? Why was there this fake trial and all the false witnesses that accused him? Why? Why was all this happening? Because people didn't live according to the truth. 
right? And therefore, they did not recognize the truth. When you don't live according to the truth, you won't recognize the truth, even when it is right in front of you. Why does our Lord suffer all of this? Why is our Lord tried and executed as a criminal to be buried and mocked? Why, is all of, why are all of these atrocities happening? Because they simply did not behold the man. And because we, we do not. We fail to behold the man. We don't look at him. He who is the truth, the way and the life. The Christian life is all about truth and purity and goodness. The reason we were created is to be good, to be true and to be pure. But we are not good and true and pure. So often we just refuse to be. So we need help. And our Savior came to give us this help, right? And this help came in the form of him becoming a man, right? This help was in him living the very life that we must live if we are to be blessed, right? If we are to be happy, divinely happy, which is the, real, the only real type of happiness. The devil, the prince of this world, he promises, he promises happiness, right? He promises happiness through the things of the world, but he never delivers. I mean, yeah, he might give us some momentary highs, but he never delivers on his promise of real happiness. And he, he simply can't because he is the source of death and misery, not the source of life and joy, right? Our Lord Christ fulfilled this life. He fulfilled human life. He fulfilled our life. And he made us capable of also fulfilling it ourselves. Not only did he just, he didn't just simply teach us about it, but he himself, he did it. Right? But yet, when he came to his own people, his own people rejected him. His own rejected him. And we are his own. We should know that each one of us has a part with that angry, mocking crowd. Because every moment of our lives, we are simply asked, Behold the man. Just look at him. And of course, this, this command, behold the man, isn't simply just to just look at someone, but it is to live as the one you are beholding. That's what, the, that's what behold the man means for us. To truly behold him, we, we have to be like him, right? Behold the man. That's what we've been doing all week, especially, especially tomorrow on Holy Friday. Beholding the man who dedicated his whole life to death. He was born to die, but of course not just to die and be dead, but so that he would arise and so that we would have life, real life. Not this fake, shallow thing we like to think is life, but real life, right? So if we are to behold him, we are to live like him, right? Tomorrow, Tomorrow is a very, very sorrowful day for us. It's a very sorrowful day. And th this is very clear when you listen to all of the tunes of the good, Great Friday hymns. They're very, very sorrowful tunes, right? But our sorrow, our sorrow is not for Christ. Of course, our sorrow is not for Christ. We know that he's not going to be in that tomb for long. Soon enough, we're all going to be singing Christos Anisti. 
right? But still, we should be sad on Good Friday. But the thing we should be sad about is that all of these awful events that are happening to the Lord are necessary because of us. Because we don't live as we should. But we absolutely can. And we can because of the cross. Because through the cross, he truly has crushed Satan. Right? Does anybody know, does anybody know what death throes are? Death throes, not uh, spelled T-H-R-O-E-S. Any doctor or anyone that's studying medicine would likely know what this, what this term means. Right? What does it mean when someone, someone is going through death throes? Death throes are these violent convulsions, these muscle spasms, these gasping noises that a person can make when they are mortally wounded and are dying in the final stages, the final phases of death. In medical terms, it's called the agonal stage of death. Now, I mentioned this. I mentioned these death throes because St. Gregory of Nyssa, you know St. Gregory of Nyssa, his writings are some of the most incredibly vivid and poetic writings that we have. And I think he's, you know, he's, we don't really focus on him as much as we should. But in one of his writings, in one of St. Gregory of Nyssa's writings, he says, he says that there are people, there are people who deny they deny Christ's victory over Satan. And they deny it because they say, look, there's so much, there's still so much evil and temptation that they see in the world. So they deny it. There's no way he could have, he could have destroyed Satan, right? But this is how St. Gregory responds to them in his very typical St. Gregory vibrant way. He says this, he says, Christ truly has killed evil and death. And all of this remaining evil that we still experience and see happening in the world, he says, this is merely the twitching of the serpent's tail after it has received a mortal and deadly blow on the head. What an absolutely incredible image. So remember that, that through the cross, Satan really has been dealt a mortal blow. He is dying. And all the evil around us, including our own temptations, they are just, as St. Gregory put it, this is just the devil thrashing around while in his death throes. He's weakened. He's dying. Right? And that very same weapon with which our Lord mortally wounded the devil, that very same weapon, the cross, it is ours. It is ours. So the cross needs to be the object of our constant gaze. We need to behold our Lord and we need to behold him on the cross. The sinful woman who entered into Simon the leper's house that we heard about yesterday, she beheld the Lord. And because she beheld him and saw his love and compassion, she rejoiced to empty out the most what was most precious and valuable to her that expensive and, and fragrant oil. Last Sunday, Zacchaeus, the thieving tax collector, he climbed the tree. And from there, he did what? He beheld the Lord. And then the Lord entered into his house and dined with him. And Zacchaeus gives up 
his riches and the things that he's been filling himself with his entire life. And Christ says to him, today salvation has come to this house. Tonight, tonight we saw St. Peter three times deny and curse and betray Christ. But then he repented because he, he beheld the Lord. His eyes fell on his Lord. And when Peter beheld the Lord, he loved what he beheld. And because of St. Peter's love for Christ, he was restored. And then Christ says to him, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Right? And tomorrow at the cross, we're going to see one more person that beholds the Lord. Right? We will see the right-hand thief hanging on his own cross who turns and beholds the Lord. He fixes his eyes on Christ on the cross and then begs him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Christ answers, today you will be with me in paradise. All of these people, all of these hearts of stone pummeled and softened simply because they kept their gaze on him. Pray that he does the same thing to your heart. In one of the prophecies that we're going to read tomorrow in the sixth hour, it's from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. This, this is possibly one of the clearest Old Testament symbols of the cross. Right? In this prophecy, remember, when God's people, the people of Israel, they're in the wilderness with Moses. And they are bitterly, thanklessly complaining. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to starve here? Right? They had complained when they were in slavery. So God saved them from their bitter bondage and, and, and the ages of cruelty. But it's not enough. So then they complain when they fear that they are trapped at the Red Sea. Again, God miraculously parts the sea for them. But that power, even a miracle that great, it's not enough. So they complain again that they're starving in this empty and barren, barren wilderness. So he answers and he rains down men on them. Again, giving them everything they need. And what happens? Yet again, it's not enough. After all that, they're complaining again because it's too tough. The manna isn't good enough. And they've gotten tired and bored of it. My goodness, the story is unbelievable. How ungrateful and, and selfish these people are. But don't we do this all the time as well? God sends us the ways to salvation. He sends us things that will fill our souls and free us from being slaves of the flesh and of worldly things. And we complain. We complain that it's, it's too boring. It's too hard to live without all the flashy stuff. It's too hard not to just hate that person. It's too hard, too boring to live a pure, a saintly life. And we're just not grateful for what he provides. But then remember what happens in the wilderness to those people when over and over and over they were not grateful for God's love. What happens next? These venomous snakes come and bite the people with their poison. 
and the people begin to die. Many of them die. What are these serpents that bite and poison us and bring us death? These are our sins, our lusts, our passions, our vanities, right? So what do the people do? They run to Moses and they confess their sin. They say, we have sinned, Moses. Please pray to God that he takes away these terrible snakes, these serpents. So Moses prays to God. And what does God do? Does he take away the snakes? Absolutely not. He doesn't get rid of the snakes. Instead, he tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it high up on a wooden pole. Why? So that when anyone is bitten by that poison, all they have to do is do what? Is look. To fix their gaze. To behold it. And then they will live. And those unfaithful, ungrateful people who gazed on it, who beheld it, were saved from the poison of the serpents and death. God, have, God could have easily just gotten rid of the snakes. I mean, the, look, why didn't he do that? That would have been a lot easier. Just get rid of the snakes, right? Why didn't he do that? Because what saved the people was faith, faith in God. Faith that after being bitten by the serpent, after even... Even after receiving poison, if they would just do as he commanded and in faith behold and fix their gaze to that figure hung on that piece of wood, then they would be saved. In the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 16, it says, The one who turned towards that bronze serpent and gazed upon it and beheld it wasn't saved by the thing that he saw but by the Savior of all. And then Christ himself says in John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert and the Son of Man will also be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then our Lord himself says, I am that bronze serpent, right? Saint Ephraim the Syrian, he said, just as those people who beheld and looked with their bodily eyes at that sign which Moses fastened on the cross and then lived bodily, so also those who behold and look with spiritual eyes at the body of their Messiah nailed and suspended on the cross and believe in him, they will live spiritually, right? The other, other fathers of the church, like St. Cyprian and St. Irenaeus, they write that in the cross we see an image of Noah's Ark, right? The, the, it's the cross, it's this, this piece of wood which is put out on the stormy sea of life, and if we just cling to it, we'll, file, we'll find shelter in it, just like Noah and the animals clung to the ark and found shelter in the middle of that terrible storm, right? But we know, we know that he, here in this world there are so many times and so many situations in our lives where we just find so much difficulty and so much bitterness in our lives. And the church fathers say that those bitter moments, those really bitter moments that we have in our lives is very similar to what happened after Moses took the people through the Red Sea and then they were looking for water there in the desert. 
They're looking for water, they're looking for water, and finally they come to, the, to a place where there's water for them at last. But there's a problem. The water is bitter. It's bitter, and they just can't drink it. And the people are dying of thirst. But that water is just too bitter to drink. So what does God do? He gives Moses a piece of wood to throw into the bitter waters, and that piece of wood turns those bitter, undrinkable waters sweet. The church fathers say that that's what the wooden cross of our Lord is for us. When our world is bitter and undrinkable and just unsatisfying, this is what the cross does. It makes it sweet. So the cross, the cross has to always be before us, in front of us, guiding every single one of our steps. From the earliest days of, of, of Christians in temptation and per persecution, how did the Christians from the very beginning respond to persecution and to temptation? Emperor Constantine the Great in the fourth century, we know who ended up ending the great persecution of the Christians, he had the sign on the, of the cross etched and engraved on the flags and standards of his army and it brought him victory. We know this. We've had it stamped on our wrists for centuries, right? This practice, the practice of the faithful making the sign of the cross on their body, this has been around since as early as the second century. It was a practice that was born from, that came from the great persecution of the Christians and it never left us for almost 2,000 years later, making the sign of the cross from the head, covering the heart and the, so and the shoulders. There's so many stories, so many stories and accounts of how effective this simple thing is against evil, right? It's not an act of magic. This isn't an act of magic. It's rather, it's kind of like praying with your hands. It's like making hand signals to God, kind of like sign language to God. Right? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This can be the most powerful prayer for us. Slowly, deliberately thinking about it. Because the cross, the cross is powerful. And it is dangerous to the demons. Just like the rod of Moses and Aaron was a weapon against mighty Pharaoh, against powers of evil and idolatry and enslavement. Right? The greatest miracles came from it. It opened the Red Sea. It led the, the people to salvation. It brought water from a solid rock. Right? That's what the cross is in our lives. And this is why the cross is the banner of our faith. Right? It is our power. It is our weapon against our demons. And it is our power against our own enslavement. Right? This is what the Lord, the, what the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is for us. So tonight, so tonight, as we prepare, as we prepare for that moment that is coming tomorrow on Great Unholy Friday, when we, together with the whole church, every church everywhere in the world, will stand at the foot of the cross, looking up at our Lord's great act of love just pouring out from that cross. And it's because of this cross, this love, because of it, that after tomorrow, actually late tomorrow night, we're going to have this amazing celebration. 
right? All of the black flags will come down and the, and the white ones will be put out because it's a celebration of our Lord's and our own passing, passing from death to life, passing from sin to glory and holiness, passing from Hades to paradise. That's what tomorrow night's apocalypse, apocalypse service is all, all about. It's all by our Savior's victory on that holy life-giving cross, right? It's a celebration. So, I'm sorry, I know I've been going long. I'm just going to wrap up with one last quick word about the resurrection itself. Just one last thing. You know, as, as we already said, although the atmosphere of this week, especially tonight and tomorrow, is very solemn and somber as we focus each day on the passion and the suffering of our Lord, the church has a very, very important teaching for us in the middle of all of this, right? The main theme, as we said, is not our Lord's suffering, but of course his resurrection and our resurrection. Last week on, on Saturday, we started Holy Week with the raising of Lazarus, right? We started Holy Week with the raising of Lazarus, a foreshadowing of our own resurrection. So Holy Week starts with a resurrection and ends with the resurrection, Resurrection is how we start and end Holy Week. Even in the darkest times of Holy Week, we keep hearing of our Lord's resurrection. We live this entire week in the approaching glorious light of the resurrection. Because our church, our Orthodox Church, is the church of the resurrection. And so, when we come to the end of Holy Week, and we reach that glorious and joyous Christos Anisti. As the feast of the resurrection approaches, as Sunday gets closer, let's keep something in mind. Let's please keep something in mind. And that is to remember, to remember not to toss away this very strong dose of spiritual message that we took over the course of this week by obsessing over things like lahma and feta and turkey and cheese and chocolate and ice cream. You know, whatever it is, right? When you wake up Sunday morning, when you wake up Sunday morning, having celebrated the feast the night before, the very, very first thing you should do that Easter morning is just feed your spirit a little bit and raise your heart in prayer and remind yourself, remind yourself of the great labor and the great blessings that you took this week, right? That you, that, you, that you spent this week intimately with the Lord so that he can carry you, so that he can resurrect you, and so that he can continue to transform you. To our Lord be the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty now and forever and unto the ages of all ages. Amen.